Well, it's a, uh, it's a great honor to, to be here, to be able to share with you. My brothers and sisters to the west in Woodland, uh, the, the rest of the Calvary family in Christ, to the, I mean to the east rather, to the west, I get my directions right here, uh, the, the rest of the, the, the family in Christ west of the 505 sends their greetings as well. Uh, now, if any of you know me, uh, I, I like to do, whenever possible, I like to, to, to kind of get some audience participation wherever I can and make sense in a sermon. And so what we're going to do, when it applies, so, so you know, uh, so that's what we're going to do uh, this morning. Okay, so don't panic, because I'm going to ask you to stand if what I ask, if what I ask you pertains to you. Is that clear? So you're going to stand if this pertains to you. Okay, this is not meant to embarrass, but to honor. Okay? Please stand if you have ever served or currently have served in the U.S. Armed Services. Thank you for your service. Okay? You may be seated. You may be seated. Please stand if you ever served or currently serving in law enforcement or as a firefighter. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Please stand if you've ever gone on a long-term or short-term missions trip. Anybody here? Okay. All right. Good. Raise your hand, though. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Raise your hand if you just got back from the Navajo trip. All right. Thank you for your service. Good job. The reason I do that is it, it'll make sense later. But, but uh, there's a special bond. There's a special bond that, that, that uh, develops between brothers and sisters uh, in arms and between brothers and sisters in service to the Lord. Uh, Many times those situations involve a, a, a lot of time together in order to complete that task. And in some cases, in some cases, the very lives that you're serving with depends on you doing your job the best way that you're able to do it. Um, oftentimes, it's a kind of a, a bittersweet feeling when that task that you were, you were, you were performing together comes to, a, to an end. On one hand, it's, it's great to return to civilian life or retirement or return from a, the mission field to the place where you call home. And that, that transition can be harder the longer you've spent with that group of folks that you were serving with. Saying farewell to those that you have served with can be, diff can be difficult, a difficult part of that transition because of the intensity of that relationship transitions into something that is a little more distant, a little more distant. It's not quite the same as when you were in the midst of that endeavor, and it's, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's not a good thing. It, it's just a different thing. And as we continue our, ser uh, our series here in Joshua, the passage that we're going to be looking at is, is, is uh, found in chapter 22 of Joshua. You might want to start turning there. 
We're going to be looking pretty much at, we're going to be kind of going through that whole chapter. Um, and what, and the next three chapters, 22, 23, and 24, they're, they're, they're all uh, farewell addresses. And the first one starts here in chapter 22. And you know the background, right? Last week and the weeks before, you know, we, we find out that, you know, Joshua at this point is like in his 80s. Uh, he's just spent, you know, seven years uh, conquering the promised land. Uh, God has, 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 has brought to the attention to Joshua, hey, it's time to divide up the land. And, and they, divide, they divide up the land between the nine and a half tribes on the west side or in the, in the promised land, which is on the west side of the, the Jordan River. Now, there were two and a half tribes that remained on the east side of the Jordan. The tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They're, they left on the eastern shore. That, that happens way back in, in Numbers a little bit. And Moses says they, 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 those tribes came. They saw this land on the eastern side before they crossed over. They were apparently had a lot of herds and flocks. And they said, oh, wow, this looks great. Hey, Moses, can we have this? And Moses was not happy. But they worked it out. He said, okay, I one condition. If you send your guys, your valiant warriors with us when we cross over to secure the promised land. And the Jordan River is a natural boundary. Now, this time of year, it looks like a, you know, not much bigger than a stream. But at certain other times of year, it it's, could be a, like a mile and a half or half a mile wide or something. It's, it could be, could be pretty, pretty, like when they were crossing over the first time. And so there, there, were some, there was some, some concerns uh, on both sides that, that the effect of that, one living on one side of the river and one on the other, might have uh, some uh, effects on the relationships in the future. So if you would, if we're going to be looking at chapter 22, verses 1 through 7 right now, okay? So it says this. It says, Then Joshua subbed the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and you have listened to my voice and all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days. To, do, uh, to this day, you have, but you have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now, the Lord your God has given, given, you, or given the rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore, Turn now and go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love your God and walk in his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all of your heart and all of your soul." And Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. So now comes this uh, transition. They were always sort of, uh, from, you know, conquering one one land to the next, and they're securing the land. So now this there's there's kind of this transition of peace. Joshua summons the Reubenites, the Gabonites, and the, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and releases them from their military service, affirms their uh, loyalty and their valor, and sends them home to their, their, uh, their wives and children, uh, sending them home with a bunch of riches. 
because they stood with their brothers and their sisters through the tough times in battle. I've been to, uh, my, my daughter recently graduated from uh, um, UCLA, and my, my nephews graduated from uh, uh, high school. And this reminds me of a commencement address. They had earned their release from active duty by faithfully serving their brothers and sisters as they uh, promised that they would to conquer the promised land. Now their service was done. I mean, this was a high point. This was a high point in in Israel's short history. Uh, There seems to be this oneness among them. Uh, uh, it, it, It was really positive. Everything seemed to be going really well. But unfortunately, it was short-lived. It reminds me of the mountaintop experience that we have when we go to summer camp or on a missions trip, right? There's a spiritual high. And then you, when you drive down the mountain or you get off the plane, the world that you left kind of smashes you in the face again. And then the mountaintop feeling fades a little as you drop thousands of feet into the smog-filled, well, lately, smoke-filled Sacramento Valley, right? Anybody else experienced that, or am I the only one? Don't leave me hanging out here. They're always doing that to me in Esparto. Always. See, Joshua sends these valiant warriors home with all kinds of spoils from war uh, uh, to share with the people back home. Everything seems so great. And then they get this troubling report. Look at verse 10. It says, uh, and when they came, and when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is the land of Canaan, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, the guys that they just released from their active duty, built an altar. There by the Jordan. A large one. Okay, not, not some little couple rocks. It was big, noticeable. And the sons of Israel heard, heard it, heard about it, and said, Behold, the sons of Reuben, the son of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh has built a, an altar on the frontier of the land of Cana in the region of the Jordan, on the side belonging to the sons of Israel. When the sons of Israel heard this, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves to Shiloh to go against them in war. See, Shiloh was where the original tabernacle stood. It wasn't in Jerusalem yet. That's where the altar was, the one and only altar. So soon after these warriors leave, from the east, they, they go to this Jordan River, and just before they cross over again, they build this huge altar, okay? And this doesn't sound all that bad, you know? It seems innocent enough. I mean, every time you turn around, they're, they're building an altar to this, an altar to that, and, and uh, you know, they have this altar they just build, or, or, or like a commemoration of their, their crossing over to the Jordan seven years earlier. So what was so bad? What was so bad here that would cause Joshua and these war-weary warriors to the west to even consider attacking these brothers to the east they just got through fighting with. I mean, this was no light matter. It was very serious. An altar that 
an altar other than the one that was at Shiloh where the tabernacle stood symbolizes a break in worship to the one true God. It, it meant apostasy, which, uh, which is a renunciation of the common faith and their allegiance to the whole, Israel as a whole. And although they loved their brothers to the east and the last thing they wanted to do was fight them and they were tired of all that stuff, they loved God more. And they were not about to let anything or anybody dishonor God in, in the process and what they've just accomplished. And See, the holiness, the holiness, the holiness of God, the one true God demands that we have no compromise. There is no compromise in the truth. You and I in the church really need to follow this example. There are some core truths that we as believers and the church should never compromise on, no matter what kind of pressure that we are getting from society. Nations, societies, cultures are always in a constant state of flux, right? I mean, I can't believe some of the changes have taken place in this country just in my short tenure on this rock. There have been many wonderful advances in technology and, and uh, advances in science, especially in the, in the science of medicine and so forth. But more, morally, we've kind of been on a very slippery slope. Things that you would have told me would be mainstream in our society today 25 years ago, I would have, wouldn't have believed it. But what gives me hope, what gives me hope is that God never changes never changes uh, hebrews says remember those who led you who spoke the word of god to you and concerning the result of their conduct imitate their faith jesus christ is the same yesterday and today and forever amen folks as a church we need to be diligent in living out our faith in a way that expresses the truth that lies within us as a church, we ought to never feel pressure to compromise on core truths. And some well-meaning attempt to be relevant to this world. If we go down that road, we will be irrelevant or irrelevant to this world that so desperately needs to hear the truth. The world that needs the church, that needs a church, an individual in the church to be lights within it, showing the way, the only way. In Jesus, who is the only living, life-giving truth. And that truth is that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of this world, for those who would believe in him, who died on the cross, who was buried and was rose, arose on the third day, conquering death, securing for us, securing for us an eternal home in his presence for eternity. Jesus is the only way, like it says. Like he says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 says, There is no salvation in no one else. There is no, one other, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which men must be saved. There, there's some things that we just can't compromise on. And if we do, if we do, we will be irrelevant, not only to this world, but more importantly, 
will be irrelevant to God. I love these Old Testament books like Joshua because there's just so much, there's timeless, there's timeless practical application contained in it. We see very clearly here that we need to be careful not to jump to conclusions. Follow along with me when we read uh, uh, verses 13 through 16 here. And says, Then the sons of Israel sent the sons, sent, sent to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, and with him ten, chief, ten, ten chiefs, one, uh, one chief for each father's household from each of the tribes of Israel. And each of them was the head of his father's household among the thousands of Israel. They came to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead, and they spoke with them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this unfaithful act which you have committed against God of Israel? Turning away from following the Lord this day by building for yourselves an altar to to rebel against the Lord this day. So, Instead of, you know, they were prepared for war, but instead of, you know, going there first, instead of going there and fighting first, the cooler heads prevail. Before fighting ever takes place, Phineas, along with the heads of the Western uh, tribes, they go and they have a frank conversation with their other brothers from the East. They're like, dudes, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are your intentions here? So there was this tension. There's this tension between the two. And, and how the tribes of the East respond will determine what happens next. But, in through, but through this process of reasoning, reasoning together, like it says in that beautiful, the beautiful words of the prophet Isaiah, Verse uh, chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Uh, wool. Uh, when Isaiah stated those words, it was in the context, hundreds of years after Joshua was written. He's trying to get Israel to turn their hearts back to God. Before it was too late. However, they didn't listen. And eventually they were carried off into captivity. But if you caught the, the last part of verse 18 there, it alludes to the truth of a Messiah. See, there was still hope. There's still hope. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. They're red like crimson. They will be like wool. Kind of a foreshadowing of Jesus. So because of this confrontation, because it was dealt with um, in, in a constructive, honest way, they reasoned together. And we see in verses 24 through 26 that the Easter, uh, we, see what the, we see what the Eastern tribes were uh, afraid of. So what they were afraid of is that the Western tribes, they built that altar, this huge altar, because they were afraid that the Western tribes were going were gonna to forget about them once they crossed over, as time went on. 
In other words, there was no evil intent, no notion of rebellion. They're, they're, they didn't want any, they don't want to be separated from their countrymen. But there was this unfounded fear that needed to be addressed. So they do. They reasoned together. And they avoided a terrible, terrible misunderstanding that would, could have ended in bloodshed. Man, it's... When, An when Andy and I were looking at this passage, we noticed something that was striking. Uh, the similarities of this passage remind us of how, you know, how important good communication is in maintaining the unity of the body. Amen? So if, you're, if you aren't aware, uh, Calvary Baptist Church operates as one body, adhering to one uh, uh, or adhering to the same doctrines, governance, uh, responsible uh, to one deacon board. Um, we are one church that operates in two locations, here in Woodland and in Esparto, 13 miles to the west, separated by the boundary of 505. While it's kind of hard to miss the similarities here, it's really easy to see why if we don't make deliberate efforts to maintain unity amongst our people, misunderstandings can occur, right? As we were discussing this, we realized that if you didn't have all the information about who we are, what we did in Esparto one Sunday this year might have caused the tribes of Woodland some concern. Because we closed our doors on the most sacred day of the year, religiously, or to the Christian. Well, that's not all. We combined with uh, the Presbyterian Church, also, that has a much liberal, more liberal take on theology than we do. And, and, and also, we included the folks on On Fire Fellowship that have more of a Pentecostal flavor to their worship style. Because we wanted to do a Easter community Easter service. And the venue, that our little, the church we are, wouldn't hold everybody if everybody came. That was our big fear. And plus, we were asked to do it. They were asked to do it. And with permission of Andy, out of practical reasons, we went ahead and went for it. As long as I did the preaching, he was okay. I said, okay. Not only did they let me do the preaching, they turned the whole thing over to us. The worship team, Steve and, and Jerry and uh, Deb Ottman and, and Don Anderson and his wife and my wife, they all sang Easter, um, Easter, uh, Easter specials and everything. It was awesome. And by the way, it was packed. I mean, standing room only. And it wasn't just from the folks in the three churches that kind of planned this together. It was a lot of faces from the community that we've never seen in either, any of the churches before. So it was, it was a good thing. Even though it was billed as an Easter, uh, Easter Sunday celebration, it wasn't by any means some watered-down uh, ecumenical version of Easter. It was a full-on, no-holds-barred celebration of Jesus Christ, our, our risen Savior. It was awesome. But if you didn't know all the facts, you might be asking, what's, you know, what's Pastor Chris doing out there? What's he doing? Why would he close his doors on the most sacred day of the year to Christians? 
in favor of this other venue. What's he thinking? Is he going to start wearing a robe? Is he going to start speaking in tongues? Well, maybe the robe thing. Because that would be cool. No, literally. It's hot up here. I could be wearing that thing and having a t-shirt and shorts and you never know it. It gets hot out there. When you get 20 people in that room and the air conditioner doesn't keep up, ah, man, I'm looks like I'm doing that hellfire and fat, that damnation thing, you know, with that pounding because I'm, you know. All kidding aside, though, at times there's a certain tension that exists between our two locations. Uh, I felt it, and some of you may have felt it as well. This is normal. All the research that we did, all the books that we read, all the outside uh, sources that we consulted said this is a normal thing. And we knew that before taking that step of faith to reach out uh, to the community of Esparto in a committed, sustainable way. But, but he, he, here's the thing. For a church the size of Calvary, to put a church in Esparto? focused on reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ, providing solid teaching and preaching uh, to, 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 to make disciples, caring for them in a loving environment encourage, that encourages spiritual growth. That is truly remarkable. That shows, that speaks well of this church. It speaks well of their vision. It speaks well of their, uh, their faith in God and their adherence to the Great Commission. It really does. But all that goodwill all that goodwill could be could just be uh, done away like that. Just like that. If some kind of misunderstanding got blown all out of proportion. It's always better to err on the side of mercy and cooperation, being careful not to jump to conclusions before all the facts are in, before the truth is fully known. I, I hope you are encouraged as I am to always... Follow the principles of Joshua and, and the priest Phineas here. Not only, you know, in our church life, but in our family lives, in our personal relationships, at work. Not jumping, not jumping to conclusions may save you just a lot of heartache and a lot of relationship repair work. As, as almost important as not jumping, jumping to conclusions is, equally important is how the people or how this group responds when confronted. Thankfully, the two and a half tribes here in verse 21 through 28 clearly explain their intentions and why they, they built this huge altar. And instead of getting all defensive, getting all mad, the Reubenites and the Gadites responded, with grace and understanding, they, they were able to be open to a correction. They could have gotten, things could have gotten really ugly. I know that never happens out there, you know, that you know about. But they could really, I mean, if they weren't humble, I mean, they could have, they could have said it would be easy for them to say, you know, how, how dare those other tribes assume the worst? How dare those other, uh, other tribes make this accusation? How, how dare they question our faithfulness to God? They could, have, they could have went that way. But to their credit, they said, no, you know, you guys are totally right to be concerned. 
We agree, if we created this thing, this altar thing, to be any kind of an idol, you should destroy us right now. May God strike us. But, but, but let us explain what, why we did this, okay? And they do. You know, it looks bad. It looks bad. But the purpose wasn't to use it for any kind of sacrifices, but as a way of making sure the tribes to the east of the Jordan stayed connected with the tribes of the west. I, I can almost feel the, uh, the sigh of relief reading this text after the explanation was given. Let's go ahead and read this. It's uh, um, verse 30 through 32. It says, So when Phineas, the priest of the leaders of the congregation, even the heads of the families of, the, of Israel who were with him, heard the words which the son of Reub, sons of Reuben and sons of Gad and the sons of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, said to the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and to the sons of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord. Now you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Because there would have been consequences. You know, I can't help wonder if uh, if, if Joshua was sitting there going, man, this is like rinse and repeat. I mean, like, Dead Sea. I mean, excuse me, the Red Sea, we cross over. Moses goes up the, the mountain to get the law. I come down, we got golden calves. What's the deal? And we all this rebellion, and it was a serious thing. They broke, they broke with uh, 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 worshiping the Lord. And there, there, was, there was consequences for that. And, I, and his, he's been through it. He, and one of them, he's like, oh man, I don't want this again. Really, it's only been, a few, I don't know how long it's been, but it doesn't seem like it's a pretty short time. I can't help but wonder if King Solomon had been reading Joshua 22 when he wrote these words in Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. See, it's pretty hard to stay mad at somebody when they're agreeing with you. Note to self, that's a good negotiator. Conflict resolution technique, you know. Both sides are willing to make considerable efforts uh, to maintain peace. I mean, in verse nineteen, verse nineteen, the Western tribes are willing to give up some of the land they just got. If if the if the two and a half tribes, if the land they're living in was somehow causing them problems and they needed to to, to get out of there to stay true to God, can, come over here. You can have some of our land. That says that you know, hey. We care about you guys. We love you guys. And the last thing we want to do is fight you. We want to stay united. What I want you to grasp from this message is, is pretty simple, pretty clear. It's, it's that the church, as the church and as individuals, it's okay to be uncom uh, uncompromising when it comes to the central truths of God while at the same time being willing to extend grace and understanding to avoid a, a, a misunderstanding, to avoid a situation that would rip and tear at the very fabric of the unity of the church. And more churches have been damaged irreparably over things like carpet color and hymns versus contemporary music style, over any major theological or doctrinal issues. 
If, the, if we, the church, can't get along, what does that say about our God? What does that say about our God? The enemy of your soul will like nothing more, nothing more than to sow discords of, of dissension between God's people that make up the church. He's never happier when we're fighting amongst ourselves. Let us always strive to stand strong for God's truth and love each other in his strength and remain humble and teachable in our faith. Always shining brightly like lights, like cities on a hill that cannot be hidden to a dead and dying world that needs Jesus Christ so desperately. Let's pray.